The Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Listen for the word of the Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And then when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. John Wesley founded the Methodist movement in the 18th century, and he gave the church very early on the general rules by which we should conduct ourselves. Those rules are do no harm, do good, and attend to the ordinances of God. Do no harm, do good, attend to the ordinances of God. But Mr. Wesley gave his preachers three additional rules Always be ready to preach, pray, and die. <laughs> Illness is never part of anyone's timeline. It even happens to preachers on Sunday morning. So we wish Reverend Rogers a speedy recovery. I know how excited she was, and we all are, when she will preach her first sermon. I know the amount of time she put in it over the past couple of weeks. She and I were talking earlier this week, and I could see the sparkle in her eyes, and then I could feel the nerves, too. And we talked about how stepping into this pulpit for the first time or for the 500th time, it has that effect. It's this pulpit that is historic, coming over from Court Street, as I recall, I shared with Reverend Rogers the first preaching experience of one of our previous associate pastors who had put so much time and energy and effort into the text and, and practiced and practiced and practiced and got all the way up to this moment and made the step all the way up here and eight minutes later was done with the sermon. <laughs> Some of you are saying amen. That's probably the best sermon <laughs> that we've heard, right? But... We pay for a full hour of television on WSFA, so we had to finish. And Bishop Duffy, Paul Duffy, always ready to preach, pray, and die, stepped into the pulpit and finished preaching and occupying the airtime. Audrey and I laughed about that. I told her that my first sermon from this pulpit was without any seminary training, and I was scared to death. I shared with her that I'm kind of a sentimental guy, and this is such a long step from where we sit to where we stand, and you feel a little bit isolated out here. But in that moment of my first sermon here, I thought about all the moments in history that had anticipated 
my arrival. And I thought about all the moments that have anticipated her arrival. I thought about all the preachers who have stood and proclaimed the gospel during world wars and local tension and building campaigns and after the loss of matriarchs and patriarchs, I thought about all the celebrations of, of life like doses that we'll share this afternoon and Anne's tomorrow. I thought about all the celebrations of life that have been attested to from this very pulpit. I thought about each time someone has come to sit in these pews to hear a word of hope and I thought about how people on a random Sunday, not knowing where else to go or even why, have found their ways to these pews and to this church. I thought about a lot of God's children who had returned to this hallowed space after many, many years of estrangement from God and from friends and from family, stepping into this pulpit on one's first Sunday reminds one that everyone who comes into this house on a Sunday morning is searching for something. Some are searching for answers as to why God allows things to happen like cancer and car wrecks. Why are there things such as the loss of someone at too young an age why does God allow loneliness to persist? We're all searching for peace like a river because anxiety is at an all-time high in this world. We're all searching for hope amid the chaos because friends and families need to reconcile some this very day. So for what purpose have you come today? For what are you searching other than you came to hear Audrey preach. We are all searching for something, but our gospel text today tells us that we're not the only ones who are searching. There's good news in that. On Tuesday mornings, uh, something quite beautiful happens over in our fellowship hall. Our Bible studies have started, and several of those studies are ongoing throughout the year. We have a younger men's group, a more seasoned men's group, who meet on Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m., and we have a, a mixed group who meets on uh, uh, Wednesdays at 10.30 in the morning. And all three of those groups right now are studying the lectionary readings for each week, the Old Testament reading for the coming Sunday, the Psalm, the New Testament reading, and the Gospel reading. And they're just thinking and praying through those and, and helping we preachers, helping us out as we shape and craft. And so I was working with the, two of those groups this last week, and um, we were talking through these texts, the first of which is the, the text from Jeremiah. And it is anything or seems like anything but good news. It talks about how foolish and sinful the people of God are. Uh, he calls them expert sinners, God does. The people have become expert sinners, and this hot, scorching wind was going to come from the mouth of God. And he was so angry, this image of God in this Jeremiah text, we thought, my goodness, it says, because of all of your sinfulness, the earth shall mourn, the heavens grow black, I have not relented, and I will not turn back. That's from God's mouth, and none of us want to say thanks be to God to that. We want to say, yikes. Scholars tell us to look for patterns, though, in the Bible. One of the patterns uh, that you may use to read your Bible is this pattern of creation 
decreation and recreation. You write that down. Creation, decreation, and recreation. That God establishes this creative world. It's very beautiful and wonderful and for us to enjoy and to be a part of and to be stewards of. And then because of our, our sinfulness to one another and our sinfulness to the land, it, we decreate God's creation. But God is always faithful to recreate something new. The challenge is that we want to stay stuck in the decreative state and, and see God as angry. You know, we think of ourselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God, but the reality is we have to keep reading, we have to keep living, we have to keep praying, we have to keep preaching, praying, and dying to ourselves and keep searching for some good news. By the time we get to the Exodus reading, it's one of my favorite. It's Exodus 32, and Moses and Yahweh are having this incredible conversation. Um, it happens around an incident called Calf Gate. You remember that little small thing that happened? They were building an idol to worship other than Yahweh. God was infuriated. Moses said, don't destroy him. And he pleaded with God. And there's a line at the end of that lection that says, and God changed his mind about the disaster he planned to bring upon his people. Hmm. So you start seeing a shift in the lectionary readings this week that brought us uh, this past week and, and really this morning to Psalm 51. It's very familiar to it. It's the Psalm of, of David in the wake of what we call Bathsheba Gate. <laughs> Create in me a clean heart, O God. A wonderful exercise this week would be to pull that Psalm up and look at all the personal pronouns and circle it. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Cast not me away. Restore to my salvation, the joy that has been missing. We're all searching for a place. The lectionary readings start making the shift. We're all searching for a place to be made whole, places to be redeemed, a place to be ourselves, a place where bones that have been crushed rejoice again, as Psalm 51 says. And this shift happens when we awaken to our sinfulness and begin this journey, this long journey toward uh, repentance, like King David like the people of Israel in the reading from Jeremiah, we're all searching for something and we all need to be found. Timothy passage continues with the theme of repentance and then we get to St. Luke's text. Luke, the artist, Luke, the doctor, he's painting a triptych for us. We'll pick up the third part of that next week. We have a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son or lost sons. A little sneak peek for next week. And what I've decided is this triptych that Luke is painting should be entitled Prodigal Love. When is love actually prodigal? Because I don't know about you, but that's not a word I use that often. In watching football yesterday, I didn't use the word prodigal. I haven't used it in a grocery line. I don't know. You know, I just... Too many letters. I don't know what it is. I don't know. When is love actually prodigal? When it is sacrificial 
and extravagant and asks nothing in return. Love is prodigal when it defies all logic and sensibilities and even structures of time for which there seem to be such a shortage in our, our schedules. Prodigal love says, I don't care how long it takes, I will keep searching and searching and searching and searching. And you as the church are called to keep searching and searching and searching until you find that which is lost to God. Over the years since this trilogy of parables was put in the canon, many people have proposed not preaching this triptych because prodigal love is not practical love. It doesn't work in our economics or with good sense or with our social order. Surely, Lord, we say, we are not expected to roam around looking for people who are lost or wayward in the same way that you look around for us when we are lost. It reminds me of something that Henri Nouwen once wrote about related to prodigal love. He, he says, I now see that the hands to forgive, the hands to console, the hands to heal, the hands to offer a meal must become my own. Because the idea is that God's hands have reached out in that way to us and now we as the body of Christ extend that to someone else. Because what is lost is now found, and what is found now seeks that which is lost. This sequence of readings from Luke 15 can be so familiar to us. A lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. It can be so familiar to us that we just like shut down and we're already thinking about where is lunch in 15 minutes, right? Well, I want to share one final thing, something I discovered anew in the 30 minutes that I had to write this sermon this morning. <laughs> come, Holy Spirit, come. In verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors, all, not some, all the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. Why? What is it about Jesus that attracted so many tax collectors and sinners? And you accountants, I'm sorry, but like that phrase just is always in the Bible, tax collectors and sinners, tax collector and sinners. I don't know why it's like that, but in the first century, I do know why it's like that. In the first century, there was skimming off the top and lining one's pockets under the name of, of Rome and tax collectors. Well, it's kind of a bricks with, without straw moment. What is it about Jesus that attracted so many tax collectors and sinners? And hmm, these hated tax collectors, these sinners, maybe the ones who were unclean and not allowed to be in the temple, they were so attracted to Jesus. And then in verse 2, you just lay these things in tension together, as the scriptures often are. Verse 2 says, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling because Jesus welcomes, in the present, welcomes sinners. And then it adds this line, and eats with them. There's always food where Jesus is. Don't you just love that? It's like a Methodist motto. Where two or three are gathered, there will be Jesus and food. I love that. Why are sinners drawn to Jesus? Because Jesus is drawn to sinners who are lost. Because we're all searching for something. And Jesus is searching for all of us. Richard Rohr, whose work I assume many of you are familiar with, once wrote, we're all being loved in spite of ourselves 
It's a big phrase. Nowen goes on to ask a, a series of questions that I, I love. It's very contemplative, and we can use these as prayer guide this week. He says, the question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by God? The question is not, how am I to know God, but how am I allowing myself to be known by God? And the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? Hmm. Lost and found. The other connection I hadn't made until early this morning as I thought about Yahweh back in the garden, do you remember that account? Creation, decreation, recreation, there's that theme. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve had messed up. They had become lost, separated. Things had changed. They knew what they didn't need to know, shouldn't have known, according to... The... And the very first thing out of, out of the mouth of God was not condemnation. The very first thing was, where are you? Where are you? God, like a woman who lost one of her ten coins, will turn the house upside down in search of that one coin. She will make a clean sweep. And I just assume that the whole time she's on her hands and knees moving furniture, looking in all of the little cracks and crevices and underneath the rug and checking the animals and the pets to see if they gobbled it up. And I assume the whole time she's saying, where are you, little coin? That's prodigal love. Or like the shepherd who loses one out of 100 and goes into frantic search mode, leaving all else behind, risking life and limb for that one precious sheep. And I envision that shepherd calling out, where are you? That's prodigal love. He ends the parable by telling the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, the scribes, I think they had started putting the pieces together at that point. And Jesus says, when one human being that is lost returns returns home there's more rejoicing in heaven than for those who need no repentance where are you in the bleak midwinter of 2018 i received a call from from dr nancy anderson that her beloved colleague and the favorite English professor to many of us, Dr. Cliff Browning, had died after a short illness. And Nancy asked if I'd be willing to drive up from my previous appointment at the time to officiate Dr. Browning's funeral. I sheepishly agreed, fearful of crafting phrases for the man's life who incessantly yelled at us, omit needless words. <laughs> Trying to figure that out now, Dr. B. Well. All of that settled a bit when I learned the two songs that Dr. Browning wanted at his funeral service. The latter of the two was the one that the service ended with. It's a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, Teach Your Children Well. <laughs> we had so much fun celebrating his life together. But the prelude, 
that accompanied us, that welcomed us all into worship that day over at Leak Memory Chapel was a song by U2. I love that band. I still haven't found what what I'm looking for. You know that song? That final stanza still gets me right here in, in light of the honor of officiating Dr. Browning's funeral, but also just thinking about my own faith story. It says, I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. Bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains. You carried the cross of my shame. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I think God's willingness to climb the highest mountain and to run through the fields and so meticulously look in every crack and under all the furniture and to roam the countryside in search of those who are lost is an invitation to see the inner chamber of God's heart and why this world needs Jesus. What does that say about the role of the church? Have we found what we're looking for and whom for whom we are looking. I suppose the constant search on our part is we're learning by grace the radical nature of God's prodigal love. We learn that when we allow God to find us and to love us. So I leave you with those two questions. Have you found what you were looking for? Where are you? And who do you know that needs to know that at a moment in history there was this tangential time when God said, look no further. I want to come and be a part of your story. And so this child of all things came into this feeding trough of all things, into Bethlehem of all places, and grew into this man that was God in the flesh. He said, I'm going to come find you by being one of you. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we lift these words to you today, asking that you would give us eyes to go and to see the unseen and ears to listen for those who are crying in the night and then the means to go and to seek those who need to be found. Maybe we're sitting here today and we understand that we are valued to you and that you left the throne of heaven to come in search of us. But maybe there's those who are here watching abroad who just feel so lost and need to know that you love them. So I pray that you would pour out the power of your Holy Spirit now through grace alone. Speak to the hearts of all of those who feel so cut off and so alone. And find them, Lord. Begin to fan the flame of joy and hope once again. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.